18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to dissolve her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Yeah, I think as a people, we we do want proof for many, many things. And this is not a bad deal. I mean, we generally like to know that what we're looking at or what we're enjoying is true and right and and uh, we see this in the court of law, of course. You know, we, we, you know, eyewitness proof in particular is the best kind of proof, right? In the court of law, it establishes uh, the reality of events. It's good to know that somebody saw this at this time. And, and it helps us to trust what's being said is true. Well, you know, <clears throat> in these next four weeks, we thought what we would do is look at some eyewitness testimony of this birth of the Messiah, you know, somebody on the ground, what did they see? What did they experience? What did they know? Um, I think we all have ideas about what Christmas is like, friends and family and, and kind of uh, fellowship, but, but I, I think the eyewitnesses that we're going to listen to over the next four weeks are going to be more significant. They're going to draw us into, I think, a little bit deeper understanding of the nature of Christmas. And our first witness is going to be Joseph. Uh, Joseph's testimony is found in the Gospel of Matthew that was read, chapter 1. This this Gospel is going to shed greater light on the nature of the how and the why of his birth. How was he born? And and why was he born? But I want to look through this story, through the lens of Joseph now, and, and, and really three things. There was a dilemma that he faced. So he faces a dilemma there in the first two verses that I'm sure you picked up. And then he has this dream. God gives him a dream, which is going to reveal the how and the why of Jesus. And then there's a decision that Joseph is asked to make. There's a response that he makes. So we'll look at the story here, or at least Joseph's testimony, through the lens of a a dilemma, a dream, and then, of course, the decision. So the dilemma, I think you see clearly with me in verse 18 when he says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So betrothal was the way that people were married in this time. It was arranged beforehand. A couple had a marriage arranged. Perhaps even a a price for the bride was paid. And a betrothal was a binding agreement. It was a it was a decision made that people agreed that they're going to be married. And, and a couple that was betrothed would be considered married. I mean, they would have all the rights and privileges of a married couple, except for that of sexual intimacy. In fact, it was so binding that, that if you sought to ex- extricate yourself from the betrothal, it would require a divorce. Or if there was infidelity, 
during the period of betrothal, that would be punishable by stoning because it would be considered adultery. So in our case here, Mary and Joseph were actually betrothed. They had already agreed to what their parents had decided. And, and this is where the dilemma comes. You notice Matthew's straightforward way of speaking about this? While he doesn't try to answer every nuance of the mystery, and he doesn't try to satisfy, in terms, satisfy us in terms of every detail, he doesn't avoid the dilemma. What we find here is they're betrothed, and we find that she is with child before they came together. Before they had sexual relations, she is with child. So if you're here today and you struggle with the nature of the miraculous, you weren't the first one. I mean, Joseph was the first one that struggled with this idea. I'm a virgin, but I'm pregnant. That is a problem. That is, that is a hill to climb over. And I want you to recognize, before we just look at it, we kind of look back at this and we're familiar with the story. Let's not just forget about what Joseph would have been going through. I mean, can you imagine the sadness that he would have felt? The anger, maybe? I, I mean, th this woman that you've betrothed yourself to has been apparently radically unfaithful to him. I'm sure he was embarrassed. I'm sure he felt at a loss. What am I going to say to my family and my friends? I, I mean, what do I do? Should I drag her to the city gate and take her before the elders and accuse her of you know, committing infidelity? How do I handle it? I mean, can you imagine the weight as he's trying to process? You know, it's, it's like when you hear that news that you don't want to hear. You, you just kind of go cold and you just kind of go in shock. What was he feeling? But, but thankfully, we see that he's a just man. He's a kind man. And he resolves to put her away or to divorce her because it was a betrothal, to divorce her quietly. I love that about Joseph. You know, he's not a big man. He, he's, he's just a carpenter. He's above a shepherd, maybe. But he's nowhere up the social ladder. He's really a nobody. He's an obscure man. He's an insignificant man. In fact, you see him go right off the pages of Scripture after this. In fact, most scholarship thinks that he's, in fact, he dies early in Jesus' life because he isn't there when Jesus begins his ministry. So, so where's Joseph? But it's funny, God chose Joseph to be the adoptive father of the king of the universe. Would you have chosen Joseph? I mean, if you were God and you could pick somebody to be an adoptive father, who would you have picked? I wouldn't have picked Joseph. I would have picked somebody with a higher social standing, maybe higher up on the ladder, maybe more, <clears throat> more effective as a communicator, maybe more someone that has stronger leadership skills, maybe somebody better postured in society. That's probably who I would have chosen. It's interesting, don't you think? What does this teach us about God? I mean, God chooses shepherds and, and, and children and women and Joseph to do his bidding. I mean, doesn't that kind of leave you uh, maybe a bit awkward, maybe comforted in some ways and maybe troubled in others? That, that he doesn't choose? I, I mean, think about it. The people he chooses and their stations in life, those are many of the places that we're trying to climb out of. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be the weak. We don't want to be the disenfranchised. We don't want to be the uneducated one. We don't want to be the unpolished one. And yet God seems to keep picking these people to do some of his finest work, and yet we don't want to be them. We live in a celebrity culture. We have celebrity preachers. We've got celebrity politicians and entertainers and athletes. We want to be like them. We want to be different, polished, better. 
more respected, more recognized, more well-known. And yet God continues to go to what seems like the bottom of the barrel to do his finest work. I, I pray that in this Christmas season, you know, we tend, to, we tend to think of ourselves as always less than someone else. I don't have their gifts, I don't have their strengths, I don't have their style, I can't speak like they, I, I don't look like they, I don't have their position. And, and we write ourselves out of God's plan all the time. And I would just ask you to confront that lie. So when that thought comes into your mind, that you would remind yourself of Joseph, that you wouldn't listen to this lie, that your gifts aren't enough to do this ministry that you don't know enough of the Bible to speak to this person about Jesus Christ, that, that I don't have the capacity to serve in this context. It w- confront those lies with the reality that God uses shepherds and women and children and, and carpenters to do his finest work. Uh, confront that darkness with the truth that it brings great glory to God to use people of humble beginnings to do great work. So, David is, or Joseph, sorry, Joseph is facing a dilemma here, isn't he? And and he's got a pregnant virgin wife before him. So what's he going to do? Well, look with me in verse 20. Because in verse 20, uh, he sees that he begins to consider these things. He says, but as he considered these things, now how long did he consider them? I don't know, but I imagine he considered them for a while. I imagine he may have been laying on his bed at night just being twisted and turned over the nature of the new events that he has to deal with. And most likely he fell asleep. He was awoken, you'll see, in 24. So he must have fallen asleep. I mean, can you imagine? I'm sure that was a fitful sleep. You know how those times are when life has just taken a radically horrible turn and you go to sleep and you almost wish, I want to wake up to a different reality. I I can imagine he was thinking that way, that, that I just want to go to sleep you didn't have the Southwest commercials, you know, that just take you away and you end up at some paradise location in the middle of a... But, but I'm sure he went to sleep thinking, I just want a different life when I wake up. But God in his mercy, you can always say, but God, but God, but God. But God in his mercy rewards his faithfulness and his kindness with a dream. He gives an, he sends an angel. That's what angel means. It just means sent one. So he sends one to straighten the matter out with Joseph. And this angel appears to him and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He's saying she's been faithful. You don't have to fear taking her as your wife. Don't be afraid of that. Very kind of God. I imagine that when they talked later, Mary may have said, you know, I told you so. I told you I had a dream. I told you it was from God. We don't like to see Mary that way, but I would have been tempted to say that. So so this angel comes, and the angel begins to straighten things out and says, what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, let let me remind you, a lot of religions will take this and say that God has impregnated Mary. That's not the point at all. They kind of look at it in, like in Roman and Greek mythological terms where the gods consort with the mortals and they kind of have these half-god, half-men, half-god, half-women kind of beings. That's not it at all. Uh, what Matthew's trying to explain to us and what the angel told Joseph, now this is the dream. So we have the dilemma and the dilemma is followed by a dream. In this dream, the angels tell him he has no earthly father. He has no, he has no father. And he did not come about by any sexual union. So this birth of Jesus, this conception, is radically different. So it's the Spirit of God 
who was the agent of creation in Genesis 1. The, the Spirit of God brought forth creation by the Word of God. This same Spirit is bringing forth a new creation, and Christ is the head of it. He is, he is placed in her womb by the power of the Spirit to be born like us, but born different than us. He, he's, he's not like us in this way. And I think Matthew prepares us for this because in, in chapter 1, earlier in chapter or, uh, verse 16, you know, if you read through the genealogy later, you're going to see that this father begat this son, this father begat this son, this father begat... It goes all the way through it. It's kind of just this boring drumming on of father begat son. But in 16, when it gets to Joseph, it doesn't say Joseph begat Jesus, as it should if it was, in, if it was consistent. It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So Matthew makes a clear change to make sure and prepare the ground. He has no earthly father. Now, of course, Joseph is wondering, how is this? And so what the angel does is the angel references him to Scripture, that God promised to do it this way. This is the way God works. God works outside of our ways and means of understanding. And so he references, the angel is literally quoting the words of Isaiah and the example of Isaiah chapter 7. And that's where he says, he says that, Son of David, do not be in fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, why does he reference this verse to explain Jesus' beginnings? Well, well, simply this. Let me give you the context. In Isaiah chapter 7, remember, Isaiah chapter 7 to 11 is called the book of Emmanuel because it speaks about this son. Now, in chapter 7, King Ahaz, who was not a good king, is being threatened. He's the king of Judah. He's being threatened by Syria to the north. And, uh, and he is seeking to make a foreign alliance with Assyria. So he's looking to protect himself. And so Isaiah comes to him and says, do not look to make foreign alliances. Trust in the Lord your God. He has covenanted to us. He's promised to Abraham. He's promised to David. He will bring about a kingdom through Israel. And, and he says this. He says, in fact, he'll give you a sign that a virgin will give birth. Now, in Hebrew, the word virgin and young maiden is the same. And it was the same in just about every case, historically, that young women were virgins. And he says, this virgin will give, or this maiden, this young maiden will give birth to a son. Now, we don't know who that son is. It could be the son of Ahaz, it could be the son of Isaiah. We don't know. It seems like a kind of an unimpressive miracle to me, to be honest with you, in terms of just some young woman having a son. But God uses this as a sign to show that he's, He's committed to seeing Israel bring forth their Messiah. But what helps us understand this miracle about a young maiden giving birth to a son is chapter 8 explains that this son that will be born, that he will be a stumbling stone for those who don't believe. And that he will be a cornerstone for those who do believe. It's beginning to become familiar. And then in chapter 9, we have more information about this son. And this is the passage we often read at Christmas in chapter 9. He says, for unto us a child is born. This is the same child that was promised. So, so we're starting to get a runway here to understand what God's doing. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. So you begin to see that this child that was born in Isaiah's time was a pointer. It was a partial fulfillment of what was to come. And so when the angel was telling Joseph that this is the child of Isaiah, he would have known that's the child, Emmanuel. So now Joseph is thinking, this child is God with us. This is the child that was promised. The partial fulfillment in Isaiah has now come to bloom full in this child. This is huge, but it's not all. He's also born of a woman. You know, he was put in a womb. He had a birth like ours. He has physical characteristics like us. He would tire and fatigue and grow hungry. He would have mental characteristics like us. He would increase in wisdom. He had emotional characteristics like us. He would weep over sin. He's like us in every way. This is the profoundest miracle of the Bible. He is fully God and fully man. Folks, this has to form our understanding of who Jesus is. We cannot ever tolerate, well, he was just a good teacher. He wanted to instruct us in the ways of life. That doesn't satisfy. Or to say, well, he was a moralist. He came as an example for us to live. That won't satisfy. Or if we've ever said, you know, I think Jesus is like, and then we get to fill in the blank. We don't get to do that. I I mean, this is a yoking of of the God-man. Two distinct natures, fully man, fully human, united perfectly in the person of Christ. And we're not asked to figure out what nature does what. He's fully human to identify with us, and yet he transcends humanity in that he heals the sick, he calms the waters, he forgives sins, he raises the dead. And the scripture doesn't try to seek to distinguish between the natures. It says Jesus said this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus healed this, and Jesus preached this. We're not called to separate the natures. We're just called to stand in awe. Because without him being born of the Spirit, he would have a corrupted nature like us. He couldn't bear our sin because he would have his own sin to bear. And without him being born of a woman, he couldn't identify with us. He couldn't have lived the life we've lived. He couldn't have died the death that we will die. He couldn't have represented us. Sinful men and sinful women require a mediator that is both God and both man to reconcile us to God. This is, ought to leave us in wonderment over Christ. I mean, just, just try to get your mind around it. It's a beautiful exercise. You can't do it, but it's a pleasure in attempting to think through the glory of Christ being fully God, fully man. But it also is going to strengthen our faith in God's word. I mean, notice that Matthew said, or the angel said it was to fulfill what God had said to the prophet. God is faithful to his word. You know, Matthew ten times says, he uses this, what we call fulfillment language, where he's drawing out of Isaiah, or he's drawing out of Hosea, we'll hit that next week, or he's drawing out of, of Genesis, or he's drawing out of Jeremiah, and he's saying Jesus fulfilled that promise, and he fulfilled that promise, and he fulfilled that promise, and 47 times, Matthew references the Old Testament as preparing our minds to understand Christ. 
God keeps his promises. Now, even if you're not a Christian here, I would encourage you, because I love questions. We like questions. Questions over, you know, trace out the prophecies. Look at the promises of God in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. I would encourage you to do that. I think it's a wonderful exercise. But I think it's important for this purpose, that the promises of God in the Scripture contain both judgment and grace. God does say in Scripture, to the one unreconciled to him, that they will face a judgment, that you will face a judgment. Unless you repent and be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a warning that he gives. But along with that warning, there's the offer of grace that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why we want to look at what God says. Because if he's faithful to his word, we want to know what his word says. And this really speaks to us as a Christian. This is why we set aside the time regularly to read the Bible. This is why we want to, we want to mind the promises of God. This is why we want to read the scriptures with our family. This is why we want to consult the scripture in terms of wisdom. And we want to rest in his promises. And this is why as a church we preach through the Bible. We just went through Philemon and three sermons. We want to know what God says. This is why we read the Bible and we sing the Bible. We apply the Bible. We believe the Bible. This is why we pursue it. Because God is faithful to his word. Do you make the time? I mean, so many times we struggle with reading the scriptures. It is a difficult thing to do. It's not like reading the paper, no doubt. But it also contains wisdom that the paper doesn't have. It, 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 it takes time. It takes effort. But it's, it's, the, it's the promises of God. And, and also, it deepens our humility. When you read this story, the virgin birth reminds us we have nothing to do with the great work of God in the gospel. We can respond to it by God's grace, but we have nothing to do. God planned it. God sent the angel. God chose the people. God chose the time. God did it all. God has saved us. He's moved. We like to think that we can try to earn it or acquire it or discover it. There is no way. Salvation had to come from heaven, from God alone. And that should humble us in a sweet way, that God has done this work. But it also encourages us. It encourages us that even in the geopolitical chaos of a world right now, God is moving in the details of his creation. That from servant to king, God is sovereign over all of it. And so we don't need to read the paper. I guess we don't read papers anymore. We don't need to look on the internet for news and be concerned. We don't have to fret. We should pray. We should seek God to move greatly. But God's sovereign over these things, and it gives us rest. And it's to give us a shalom. Now, I would say if you're not a Christian here, and, and, or maybe if you're even looking at the faith and you struggle with the miraculous, you're you're wondering, you know, I have trouble believing in a miracle such as the virgin birth. I can empathize with that. I mean, we do live in a scientific age. We like everything provable. We want to know that all the evidence is there before I believe it. But we really don't live that way. I mean, we really don't live in a way that I have to know everything about something before I can say I know anything about something. We don't do that. We don't know everything about anything. So does that mean we don't know anything about anything? I mean, John Calvin said it perfectly. He said, while we cannot know God fully, we can know him truly. Miracles by their nature are not fully explainable. So, so with this miracle, yeah, 
You cannot explain everything about it. I would say that's the nature of the miracle. And, and if you're here and you're wondering, well, these people back then in, that, in the Bible time, they're just kind of an ignorant folk. You know, they don't really understand what we understand, and, and that's probably why they went along with this thing. Let me try to answer that within uh, a situation in C.S. Lewis's life. He was in his office in the English department. I think it was in Oxford. He, he was sitting there, and an unbeliever wandered in, began to speak with him. And as he was speaking with C.S. Lewis, there were some carolers. It was Christmas time, and there were some carolers outside the building singing Christmas carols. And so his unbelieving said, isn't it good that we know better than they did? And Lewis said, what do you mean? He said, well, isn't it good that we now know more than they did? I'm afraid you have to explain. Well, Lewis said, he said, um, his friend said, well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, well, don't you think they knew that? I mean, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of a miracle. A miracle is by nature not fully explainable. So, so in this dream, the, the angel is showing how Jesus was born. He was born of the Spirit and of a woman. But he also shows why Jesus was born. We're still in the dream. We're still between 20 and 23. You know, in this dream, why he was born. And look, the angel gave Jesus two names. The first name is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, Jesus, the infinite, came to the finite to dwell in our broken world. It is an amazing idea. All of Gnosticism, all of, of mythology, it was always trying to leave the physical and move to the spiritual. But here we have the spiritual coming down into the physical to dwell with us. Jesus is coming to display and to declare the glory of God to us in our brokenness. You know this was always the intention of God. God always intended to dwell with us. He created Adam and Eve. He dwelled with them. He enjoyed them. You know the sin, of course, that caused them to be removed from the presence. But the history of the Old Testament is God moving closer and closer, wanting to be with us. Why? He'll have to explain that to us himself. Why he would want to be with us. His kindness and mercy would be my my answer. But, but he moves towards us. He moved toward Israel with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He moved towards Israel with the tabernacle, dwelling closer with the temple. But now in Christ, he has come among us in the flesh. Jesus has brought step closer that God desires to be with you. God desires to, to be with you, to fellowship with you, to be in a relationship with you. I mean, don't let that just roll over as facts you know. Jesus Christ came to be God dwelling among his people to save. J.R. Packer goes, God created us for fellowship, to enjoy fellowship and communion with us. He wanted there to be genuine, personal affection and fellowship between him and us. This is a sad irony with Christmas. You know, Christmas is one of the loneliest holidays of the year. Uh, that, that we feel often, we, many of us, Christians, feel so lonely at Christmas. 
Uh, we look around at other people and we always think they're living the Norman Rockwellian experience of kind of amber glows and Christmas songs and festive times and wonderful food. And we all think that about everybody else is kind of the funny thing about it. And we all think that nobody's as lonely as us. And here it is at Christmas that Christ came to dwell with us. He wants to be with us. Can I ask you to seek him? I mean, can I ask you, if you do struggle with loneliness, that that God is desiring to commune with you through his spirit. Because Jesus Christ has come and he's died and he's gone to the Father and the spirit has come, now the spirit of God mediates God's presence among his people. We can ask God that he would share his presence with us, that he would fold us in his love. This is an experience that I'm calling for us to walk by faith in and to call upon God. Cause me to know your glory. Show me your beauty. Show me your power. The, the saints of old have experienced. Jonathan Edwards would speak about sometimes he'd be in the forest, he'd be captivated in the presence of God, overwhelming him to God's glory. Ask God for that. He, dwe- he desires to dwell among us. But not just does he desire to dwell with us, he's come to dwell with us, he's come to save us. Notice The other name is that you will call him Jesus. Now, Jesus just means God saves, Yeshua, or it sounds like Joshua. It's God saves. Now, oftentimes we think that God's saving me out of my particular financial struggle or my physical struggle or I've gotten sick and I need help. Well, I do think God aids us in that, but I think there's something more profound that Matthew's saying. He's saying God will save us from our sins. Now, what is sin? What do I mean by sin? Well, sin is not a fault or a foible or idiosyncrasy. It's not simply, you know, kind of an error in judgment, I broke the rules. But what sin is fundamentally is it's our disobedience, it's our disloyalty, it's our ingratitude to God. Here we've been created by God to live for him, to love like him. And we've gone our own way. We we want to live for ourselves, we want to seek our own glory. We pursue things in his created order as if they were as valuable as the creator of the order. And he's come to save us from that. We have turned our back to God. All of us have. And yet Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And he means by that, he's come to save us from the penalty of our sins. And we see that in the cross of Christ, that for the Christian here, that Jesus has borne the penalty. He bore it, not you. He he is your substitute. He bore the holy wrath of God so that you don't have to. And not only to save us from our sins is to bear the penalty, he's also borne He's also removed the power of sin. You know, now the Spirit dwells within the believer. We can now walk in the newness of life. That we can begin to walk being remade in the image of Christ. We can now move back towards full humanity, as God intended full humanity to be. He's going to save us from the presence of sin when he returns. Charles Spurgeon speaks about this. You know, we tend to limit salvation. We forget about what it means to save us from our sins. He says, many persons, if they're asked what they understand by salvation, will say, being saved from hell and taken to heaven. He said, this is one result of salvation, but it's not one-tenth of what is contained in that promise. It is true that the Lord Jesus does redeem all of his people from wrath to come. He saves them from the fearful condemnation which their sins have brought upon them. But his triumph is far more complete than this. He saves his people from their sins. Oh, sweet deliverance from our worst foes. Where Christ works a saving work, he casts Satan from the throne 
and will not let him be master any longer. None of us is truly a Christian if sin reigns in our mortal body. Sin will be in us. It will never be utterly expelled until the Spirit enters glory, but it will never have dominion. What happens is that Jesus has saved us from our sin means that Jesus is remaking us totally. That it's not just about avoiding hell. It's about being made into the very image of God as God always intended and to live forever with God in perfect communion. That's what he's done for us. And this is the rub for the culture. This is why the world hates the message of Christmas. It always will. Because it's saying that you and I are not adequate. Now listen, the world will accept Jesus as a therapist. If we believe in Jesus to kind of help us get along and have a healthier life, they'll accept that. We need a little help. He's coming alongside. Or Jesus, they'll accept that Jesus is a moralist, that he's coming along and he's helping us become better people. He's going to help us kind of climb up that spiritual ladder towards God. They accept that. And they accept that Jesus is a nationalist, that he's going to help make our country to be a great country again. They accept that. They don't accept that by necessity we need one to come from heaven to save us. Otherwise, we have no hope. Uh, they'll accept that, you know what, they don't do things right, uh, they're not perfect, but they don't see their moral guilt before God. And you just I, I love when I was in the prison. This is probably pushing 30 years ago, but we went cell to cell. Every Thursday afternoon, we would go to the solitary confinement wing of the Baltimore City Prison, and you'd go from cell to cell to cell, and we would just go and introduce ourselves and talk to them and and try to get into spiritual conversations with them. And I tell you, probably out of, I guess, 95% of the times I'd go to the door, it was a small cell. I mean, it was really small, about that wide, maybe eight or nine feet long, bad toilet sink, that's all there was. And every one of them was innocent. Every one of them told me that they were innocent. I began thinking, I'm in the safest place in the world. I've got to come here more often. Because it's dangerous out there. It's very safe in here because everybody was so innocent. People can't admit their guilt. They can't admit it. You look at the litany of sexual harassment cases that are just coming across the news. It is, it is tragic. It is mind-bending. And yet when they finally get pinned to the wall, what do they say? I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I mean, it was really the alcohol. Well, I, I didn't. You know, I feel embarrassed. Sorry I did it. There's no vertical dimension. There's no recognition of sin. And so there's never a need for a Savior. And he's come to save us from these sins. So that's what the angel was saying. He, he came from the Spirit and from a woman, and he's sent to dwell with us and save. That is the dream that he had. All of that is contained in the dream. He had a dilemma and God in mercy gave him a dream, sent an angel, and said, this is who he is. He's come from the Spirit, from a woman. He's the God-man who's come to dwell with us and to save us from our sins. Well, Joseph has a decision here. He has a decision, and you see this in 24 and 25 when he wakes from his dream. You don't see him considering anymore, do you? You see him just obeying. He takes Mary as his wife, he says. He takes Mary as his wife. But he doesn't have any type of relationship with her, any type of sexual relationship with her until after Jesus was born. <clears throat> That's interesting. You know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. And, and this is, I think, nowhere found in the Bible. I think it's based upon a false understanding of the body being evil and of sexual intimacy within a covenant of marriage as being unspiritual. And I think both of those are false. So... Most scholarship does feel 
because it's not in the scriptures that her virginity was perpetual. But he took her as his wife, and he did name the child Jesus. But, but I, I want you to think for a minute with me over Joseph, because Joseph obeying at this point is incredible. What would he embrace? Well, he would embrace an incredibly difficult life. To be the father of the Son of God, and all that that would entail as you read the beginning chapters of Matthew. It would entail him being the scorn of his town. Think about it for a minute. If Joseph, when Joseph married her, he was telling to everybody that that child, of which she was probably showing at this time, and that's why the thing came to be, that, that he would have been saying, I'm the father of that child. Because they would have known if Joseph wasn't the father, if Joseph hadn't slept with her before the celebration of their betrothal, then he would have taken her and divorced her. But the fact that he married her seemed to give the implication that he was the father of the child. You can just imagine in a small town the whispers, the glances, oh, that's Joseph, oh, that's Jesus, that's that son that they had before. Can you imagine the scorn and the embarrassment? He never got a chance to say, hey, let me tell you, I had an angel, and the angel told me all these things. They wouldn't have believed him any more than he initially didn't believe. Think about the embarrassment and the scorn and the shame and the dark. Kind of the dark stain on his character. Well, that's Joseph. He's a good carpenter, but you know, he's a, they, they had that scene back then. You know how stories stay. Think about the embarrassment and the obedience that he had. It was impossible what God was asking him to do. And yet he did it by faith. He did it by faith. It was insurmountable to me, and yet he did it by faith. It's very impressive. You know, we think of Christmas as a time of adoration where we worship God. And we're going to see that next week with the wise men and then two weeks following with the uh, shepherds. And, and that is part of worship. But I want you to see his obedience is the same as adoration. It is adoring to God when we obey his word. When we obey his call to be faithful. When we obey him, it's adoring. It's an act of worship. It brings him great glory and great honor. Let me ask you, during this season, maybe you can give extra thought. Where's God calling you to obey? We've just finished Philemon, this idea of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I nuanced it, of course, with the difficulty of many of your personal situations, but some of you may feel it's impossible to walk in forgiveness with somebody. I'm not saying that you are always able to reconcile in every situation, but we say, yeah, I could never walk in forgiveness to them. Is it any more impossible what Joseph did? Any more impossible? Or perhaps you have family coming to town and they don't know the gospel. And you've always been hesitant. You've been scared. You don't think that you're able to speak to them about the things of God. Can you think about this and walk in obedience and, and raise the gospel? Trust that God will enable you. He's faithful to empower you. Or perhaps it's a ministry that you've thought about doing or you've written yourself out of God's plan so many times you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Can you walk in obedience to the truth that God has gifted each believer and will empower them to do all that he brings before them? At a minimum, I pray that as we go through this Advent series that it would kind of scrub away some of the distractions of Christmas for you. I, I love the Christmas traditions. Most of them are only 100, maybe 200 years old, most of them. They weren't there. They weren't part of the original Christmas story. They're still lovely. They're expressions of joy that we have in God, but let them be just that. Let them not be distractions from the center and the heart of Christmas. Is about God 
invading our world and changing the entire course of the universe in the coming of a child who would be God among us to save us. I pray that that would just gather up your heart at this Christmas season. So let's take a minute now, and just before we celebrate the table, let's orient our mind to the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ. Our prayer before uh, the service this morning was that if Christ be lifted up, that he will draw all men and women to himself. That's our prayer for you, that you'd be drawn to him. Let's just take a minute in silent prayer, and then I'm going to pray and then lead us in a few words at the table.